Well, it's good to be here with everyone today, and it's good to uh, get to be up here in front of you all again, sharing God's Word with you. Um, it's kind of funny when we designate texts to each other, uh, or like who's going to preach which weeks, we don't divvy it out based on the text, really. We divvy it out based on mine and Matt's schedule, and um, he asks, hey, will this week work for you? And I say, yeah, sure, that's, that'll work for me. And, uh, and so you kind of just get whatever text uh, you've been given. For this particular week, uh, I remember when Matt, we were working through, okay, if you can preach this week, that will be, and we looked, and, and Matt's response was, oh, you got the hell text, right? Uh, which is kind of funny, because as we, as we are going to see as we dive into our text today, which, by the way, is Luke chapter 16, if you want to go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn there, um, we'll see that, that, that it is a, a heavy theme in our text today is the topic of hell. Uh, but the more I read through this text, the more I was, uh, I began to see this text as exactly what my title of my sermon kind of uh, portrays, that this text comes as the punchline to the money lovers. The punchline to the money lovers. This text, uh, the more I read through the whole context of the chapter that, uh, that we have here before us, Luke chapter 16, the more I began to see this text as as this is a very pointed, very particular uh, thing that Jesus is saying, and he's saying it particularly to the Pharisees, who we know were lovers of money. Uh, and as we begin, I want to ask uh, just a quick question here. Um, how many people in here, I know at least a couple of you in here who are this way, but how many people in here enjoy horror movies? Show of hands. Yeah? Yeah? Several of us. Um, a lot of no's. That's, that surprises me. Um, Kaylee adamantly shaking her head. No, absolutely not. She does not. Um, why is it that we enjoy horror movies? How is it that we can enjoy horror movies, I guess, is, is an even better question. I mean, they're literally designed to scare you, right? They're designed to try and evoke fear, right? Evoke that particular emotion, an emotion that in all other circumstances we tend to try and expel from our lives, right? And we recognize as a bad emotion. Yet we, we take these movies that present some of the most frightening, terrible themes and characters, and we, are, we glean, like, entertainment from them. And it's kind of a weird thing, right? I think about, um, I kind of enjoy scary movies. I say kind of, because I have, I, I'm like, scary movies are like spicy food to me. I kind of enjoy a little bit of spice, but I'm kind of a, uh, I don't know, um, featherweight when it comes to spicy foods and scary movies. But I did really enjoy the Stranger Things series. I thought that was a really good series. I gleaned a lot of entertainment from that. But it's a scary series, right? It's, it's I mean, some wouldn't call it horror, but I would. I was, I was pretty scared when I watched it. But I really liked it at the same time. And I, I can't watch scary movies with Kaylee. She refuses. She won't do it. So I'm always left to watch scary movies in, like, the time and situation that's, like, the worst to watch scary movies, right? Alone, at night, Kaylee's already in bed. And I'm like in the dark watching these scary shows and scary movies. So it's like the worst possible situation. So what I end up doing is like wherever Maggie, my dog, is sitting, I'll like pause the show if it gets scary and go over and sit by her and like then hit play again while I'm like holding her. Then it'll calm down and she'll get annoyed with me. She'll leave and sit where I was. And it'll get scary again and I'll pause and I'll go move back over next to Maggie and like cuddle with her. Because she's all I got, right? She's the only one that will sit in there with me while the movie's on. Um, But... We, we can be entertained by the show Stranger Things. And why is that? Here's the thing. The only reason that we are able to be entertained by horror movies, by Stranger Things, by whatever, is because we know that it's not real. Because we, it's not happening to us, right? 
we can be entertained by Stranger Things, but I think every single person in here, if some interdimensional monster were to show up in your living room, break through your wall, and try to kill you that's been going around eating children, like, we would all be terrified. No one in here would be entertained, like not even a little bit. No one in here. And yet, I, I think this is a, an important thing for us to understand because it is my opinion that hell has become like a horror movie to a lot of people. Uh, hell has become like, like a horror movie to a lot of people in that it's been trivialized, right? People don't talk about hell very much. When they do, they do it in a way that's, that's joking or trivial or, or to kind of, you know, in a, making light of it, right? We don't, people don't actually believe in the reality of hell. If they did, if they, if they actually believed that hell was a reality that they might be facing, no one would joke about it. No one would, would make light of the topic of hell. And yet we live in a world today, even, even in the church, frankly, where hell is oftentimes made light of. In our text today, we're going to be brought face to face with something that that many people probably wish we could ignore, and many people have ignored it. We're brought face to face with something that many people wish didn't exist, and in fact, many people believe it doesn't exist or try and explain it away. In our text today, we're brought face to face with the undeniable biblical reality of hell. And hopefully, that as we come face to face with this, this reality that is true of all of those who, uh, who do not have faith in Christ, it will cause us to be somewhat shaken, cause us to take seriously the reality of hell. So with that, I want to dive into our text. In Luke chapter 16, we're going to be in verses 19 through verse 31, starting in verse 19. This is Jesus speaking. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being tormented, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may, be, that they may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And Jesus said, and he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to our text today humbled, 
we come recognizing our shortcomings, our failures as human beings as we approach this text, this revelation of a holy God. And so we ask for your help. May the Holy Spirit guide us as we read these words, study this passage, and may he be, and may uh, Jesus be glorified in us as we uh, read and sit under the teaching of your word. We pray this in his name. Amen. So our main idea for today is worship of money, self, or any earthly thing as a rejection of Christ and results in eternal torment in hell. Worship of money, self, or any earthly thing as a rejection of Christ and results in eternal torment in hell. Now, I want to make the point, and and I hope this comes across in my main idea, but we have to be careful when teaching and reading and trying to understand parables. I made this point last time I preached on a parable, but parables were intended to, to teach a specific lesson, right? They are not intended to be stories in which we glean, like apply meaning to every single aspect of the story. You can find yourself in real trouble if you take a parable like this and you apply meaning to every little detail. Uh, you can really find yourself in trouble because that's not Jesus' intention. Jesus' intention in giving this parable and giving all parables is not to speak as an allegory for all things, right? This is not an allegory for salvation or, or for the Christian life, that everything has meaning. But there is a specific point that Jesus is seeking to teach through this parable. And I hope that we see through my main idea that, that you, can, you can read this parable and come to the wrong conclusion, uh, as many people have, when we read this parable outside of the, the context of the rest of, of Scripture, and we see, okay, this man uh, was rich and ignored this poor man, and because of that, he went to hell. Because he ignored this poor man. So the, for, sin of, for the sin of ignoring this guy, uh, Lazarus, this rich man went to hell. And we can find ourselves in trouble when we do that. Yes, this man did sin and the, the ignoring of Lazarus. But ultimately what he went to hell for was, as my main idea says, for worship of money and self and earthly things, which was a rejection of Christ. That he worshipped himself, he worshipped money instead of Christ. Right? And my hope today is that as we see this, uh, as we look at this parable, as we read, that we will see this as the reality, and for the end of those people who reject Christ and worship themselves is hell. As we begin, let's look first at, uh, at point number one, the earthly state of the rich man and Lazarus. We're, we're given only a small section to describe what's taking place here on earth with these two individuals. This passage is kind of unique in that way, this parable, in that the majority of the parable is set after death, right? But we can see and, and learn a little bit about these characters and the, what's going on in the story from looking at their earthly life. And we see, starting off in verse 19, our first character that's presented is the rich man. And that's the first way he's described, right? The parable starts, there was a rich man. Just from that alone, we have a, a, a quite a bit of information and gives us context in the rest of this passage. Not only was he a rich man, but he was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. To be clothed in purple in this time was to to be recognized as wealthy, right? Purple dyes were not easy to come by. They were very difficult, very labor-intensive to make and, and ship, and then therefore very expensive to buy. So to be clothed in purple was a recognition. It meant that you were wealthy. Not only that, but to be clothed in purple was to declare to the world around you, right, that you were wealthy. 
this man, this rich man was wealthy and he knew it. And he showed it. Not only that, but we see again that this rich man feasted sumptuously every day. All of these things pointing to kind of what, what people want in this life, right? What people want in the world. He was rich. He had nice clothes. He feasted every day. To feast in this time, this, this man who was feasting, means he had the best of foods. One commentator notes that this probably is indicating that this man ate meat all the time. The average Jew in this time would be lucky to eat meat once a week because meat was, it was not an easy commodity to come by. It was, it was not like it is today where we can just go to the supermarket, pick up meat. Did you know you can go to Dollar Tree right now and buy steak? I mean, if you didn't know that. I mean, I can't guarantee the quality of the steak, but they, they sell these really thin ribeyes in their frozen section. You can go and pay $1 right now from the Dollar Tree and buy a steak. Not so with the people in this time. And yet this man was feasting on meat daily. Feasting. All of these things are, are, are meant to point us to the, rea- the reality, the fact that this man was wealthy. He was well off. And when the Pharisees who were listening to Jesus tell this parable, when they are hearing this, most likely what they're thinking is, this man must have been a good Jew. Because this is what happens when you're a good Jew. You're blessed by God. And to be blessed by God means that you are rich, you're wealthy. It means that you have the things that you want. Earthly wealth, earthly blessings in the eyes of the Pharisees, was, or earthly riches was in the eyes of the Pharisees a sign of God's blessing. So to them, as we've gotten this far, verse 19, they would have heard, all right, in this story we have ourselves a good Jew as demonstrated by the fact that he is wealthy, that he feasts every day, dresses in purple, just like us, right? They would have likely heard the story of this man and thought, yeah, yeah, purple, yeah, that's all right, good Jew, good Jew. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. The second character that we have presented in verse 20 and 21 is the, the complete opposite. In verse 20, we see that this man was a poor man. He was poor. He had very little. In fact, he had nothing. We see that he dis, is been, has been given a name, though, that his name is Lazarus. And we need to recognize, again, when a name is given in a parable, there is almost always significance attached to that name. Jesus calls this man Lazarus, a name that means helped by God. Helped by God. And once again, upon hearing this and the rest of the description of this poor man, the Pharisees would have likely concluded that was a bad name. This man is not being helped by God. Look at him. He's poor. He's sick. This man isn't being helped by God. He's probably a sinner who God has rejected and is cursed with with sores and with being poor. The text says that this man was laid at the gate. Notice the text doesn't say that he laid himself at the gate. The indication of this being laid at the gate or what a word that could possibly be translated also as cast he was cast at the gate, means that this man was probably left there by someone who couldn't even take care of him or didn't want to take care of him, laid here at this rich man's gate in hopes that this rich man would take pity on him and give him food or care. He was cast here, abandoned, covered with sores, we see, longing only for what fell from the rich man's table. In this day and age, they didn't eat with forks and knives the way we do today. 
the way they ate was with their hands. That's what they ate with. And, what, and the, what's, what he's talking about here when he says what fell from the rich man's table is he's talking about morsels of bread that when these people would eat and their hands would get all messy, they would rip off a piece of bread and use that bread to wipe their hands of the mess on their hands after they had finished eating, eating and then they would throw it onto the ground to be eaten by the dogs. These are the morsels with, with which this man desired to be fed. What they used to clean their dirty hands. That's all he wanted, something to survive. He was this desperate in life that he would take even the crumbs that they used to wipe their hands. This is a a sad and desperate situation that this man has been placed in. And he would have, have likely been viewed by the Pharisees and by this man who, as we are finding out, was, was a Jew, in fact. He would have likely been, views, been viewed as being where he belongs, rejected, ignored, with the dogs. It says in verse 21 that moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. The dogs came and licked his sores. Again, how were dogs viewed in this day and age? Being licked by a dog in this time is not what we think of when we think of a dog giving licks. When we think of a dog giving, giving like licking someone, right, it's usually a good thing, like, oh, it's, uh, it's our pet, right, and they're giving kisses and, and things like that. That's not the case here. This man was, was despised, ignored, rejected, left only to the dogs who were also considered worthless, dirty, filthy, and here they were licking his wounds. There's a gross uh, disparity between these two people, a gross contrast between this rich man and Lazarus. And then death strikes in verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. So we see here, first of all, that Neither one of these, may, these men were able to escape death, right? This is fascinating to me that the, the fate of this rich man who had everything in this life met the same fate of death that this poor man left. Both of them were under the curse of sin. Neither of them could avoid it. Whatever they had, whatever they could do, it was coming for both of them. And so it struck. And when this happens, we see a great reversal. Even in the rich man's death, we see him as, as having more than this man. This poor man, Lazarus, was left to die alone in the ditch. This, poor, or this rich man, right, says that he died and was buried. More than likely receiving a proper Jewish burial, mourned properly, while this poor man was left to die alone. But we see then a great reversal take place in 23 through 26. This is point number two, the, astern- the eternal state of the rich man and Lazarus. As we start in verse 22 and then read into verse 23, we see this. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus received, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. We see here the eternal state of this rich man, 
is one sad and terrible state. And the focus now of the rest of this parable, though Lazarus is still involved in the story, the dialogue is entirely between this rich man and Abraham, the third character that is introduced into this story. And this man is likely appealing to his Jewish identity in this text. He recognizes Abraham. Not only does he recognize Abraham, but what does he call him? He calls him Father Abraham, appealing likely to his Jewish identity, his ethnic background to say, Father Abraham, I am a Jew, right? And we see even further, how does Abraham respond to him? He calls him child. Abraham, even recognizing his ethnic Jewish identity, that this man was indeed a Jew. But his ethnicity, his background, his DNA has served him no good at all. And what we see in this point, and this is, this is fascinating to me, in this story is that Jesus is essentially driving home the point that he's been making over the course of this chapter. Think back over what Jesus has said so far. If you remember a few weeks ago, we, we learned about the parable of the dishonest manager, right? And the point of that parable, as Jesus makes clear, is that he get, gave instructions on how we are to use earthly wealth, earthly resources for the sake of the kingdom of God, right? That even our earthly resources reflect our, our belonging to the kingdom of God. And he concludes with verse 13. What does he say? He says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In other words, you are either a lover of money and a hater of God, or a lover of God and a hater of money. Right? These are our options. If you are a lover of money, you are a hater of God. You cannot serve both God and money. And literally, in the very next verse, what do we see that's true of the Pharisees? Verse 14 says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money. Lovers of money. Jesus says, if you're a lover of money, you're a hater of God. And then we see the Pharisees were lovers of money. And then as we continue on, we come now to this story of the rich man where Jesus tells a story and the first character introduced and perhaps probably the main character in the story is described only as a rich man. And we hear of his tragic outcome. Jesus has literally said, lovers of money are haters of God. You cannot serve God and money. Then we see that the Pharisees are identified as lovers of money. And then right after that, Jesus says, once upon a time, there was a rich man who went to hell. It's impossible for us at this point not to see the point being driven home that Jesus is making. And he brings it to a dramatic punch with this parable. And we see as we continue on, verse 26, that there is no escape. For anyone in hell. That there is indeed a great chasm that has been fixed. Pointing us to the fact that this man is going to be there for eternity. This is his state now for the rest of eternity. The state that he himself describes as torment. As anguish. Being in a flame. This is his final and eternal state. There are some things I think. I think that we can safely like conclude about 
the place that is hell in this passage. Hell is a real place that people will suffer bodily and consciously. This man was fully aware of his suffering in hell. He was not annihilated. He was not destroyed utterly and and no longer existed. No, this man existed now in a state of eternal torment and anguish as in a flame. Jonathan Edwards has written a lot about the doctrine of hell and, and very pointedly and very forcefully and, um, and I think very correctly. And he wrote an essay one time called The Future Punishment of the Wicked, Unavoidable and Intolerable, in which he works through the ramifications of hell and what it means to be eternally punished in hell. And he makes the point that, that no one will be able to avoid hell by their own power. No one will be able to make hell not as bad by by their own power. But more than that, in hell, no one will be able to bear the torment. No one will be able to bear the torment in hell. Which then leads to the logical question of asking, well, if we can't bear it, then how will we exist there? Won't we be crushed entirely and cease to exist? And the answer to that is no. Though it's hard for our minds to fathom, hard for us to comprehend, Jonathan Edwards, in his essay, makes this point clearly. He says, So it will be with the soul in hell. It will have no strength or power to deliver itself, and its torment and horror will be so great, so mighty, so vastly disproportionate to its strength, that having no strength in the least to support itself, although it be infinitely contrary to the nature and inclination of the soul utterly to sink, yet it will sink. It will utterly and totally sink without the least degree of remaining comfort or strength or courage or hope. And though it will never be annihilated, its being and perception will never be abolished, yet such will the infinite depth of gloominess that it will sink into, that it will be in a state of death, eternal death. This is now the fate of this rich man. Without the slightest bit of comfort, to the, he is suffering so badly to the point that even a drop of water would be relief for him. I don't think a single person in here has ever been so desperate that a tiny drop of water off of a finger onto your tongue would offer any solace. And yet that is the case with him. That is his request. He doesn't request a drink of water, a gallon of water. He requests a single drop of water on his tongue. And then we see finally... The rich man's final request from hell. This again pointing us to the reality that this man is fully conscious of what is happening. Not only conscious of it, but he remembers everything. This rich man's plea in verses 27 and 28. He said, then I beg you, Father, send him, speaking of Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they come into this place of torment. I, w- I want to offer just a little side note about this section real quick and about this passage in general. I've heard it, the, the claim made, I've heard the, the kind of dilemma spoken of people who hear the gospel, hear of the reality of hell, and what, it, what is necessary for us to escape hell, which is faith in Jesus Christ and repentance. And, and they have said, what you have just told me, if that is true, then my mother or my father or my brother or sister 
died apart from that and is therefore in hell. If what you're telling me is true, then my family member is in hell and I simply cannot accept that. I refuse to believe that because if that is true, then my family member is in hell. This is utter foolishness. And the proper response to someone who makes a claim like this should be to point them to this passage. If a loved one is in hell in torment and suffering and in pain and anguish, they want something better for you. They are not down there hoping that you come and join them so that they can have some sense of joy. There is no joy to be had in hell. No family reunions in hell. No comfort from knowing you're not doing it alone in hell. And in fact, any family member that has ended up in hell wants nothing like that for you, as this man demonstrates. He wants something better for his brothers. So that's just a side point. But as we get back to this rich man's plea, we see in this plea, again, demonstrated this man's Jewish identity. This man's Jewish identity. Because what is Abraham's response to his plea? He says, nope, they have Moses and they have the prophets. Let them hear them. Moses, or Abraham saying, they have what they need to believe. Hell does not have to be their fate if they would just listen to the prophets, listen to Moses. And what does this man respond with? He responds and says, no, Father Abraham, which is a really dumb thing to say. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. What, it, what kind of accusation is this guy making right now? Built within this claim is an accusation, an implication, a complaint that I didn't have enough knowledge. If you had only told me more, shown me more, given me more evidence, I would have repented and I wouldn't be here. So if you would show that, demonstrate that to them, they won't be here either. Moses and the prophets are not enough. That was the claim this guy made. It was a false claim. It was a false claim and Abraham tells him so when he says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This man was convinced that his understanding, his, his, that what he had in the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets, that's the Old Testament, was not enough for salvation, was not enough to him, for him to be able to escape hell. But the problem is, this man's life demonstrated that he had not heard Moses and the prophets. It demonstrated that he did not know what Moses and the prophets had spoken. What do we see in Moses and the prophets? Is there enough information in the Old Testament for people to know of a coming Messiah, for people to be saved? The answer to that is an obvious yes, right? Do we believe all Old Testament saints went to hell because they only had the Old Testament? Absolutely not. More than that, this man's life demonstrated that he failed to hear and understand what Moses and the prophets had spoken because a proper understanding of the Old Testament would never result in this sort of life and attitude that this man had. Consider just a few passages. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8 says, With what shall we come before the Lord and bow myself before the Lord? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good 
and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This man didn't hear the prophets. He didn't hear Moses and the prophets. This looks nothing like his life looked. Not only that, but he failed to repent and to find forgiveness of his sins. Think of David in Psalm 32. He says, I acknowledge my sin before you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Confession of sin, repentance, a contrite heart and spirit. That was not what this man had. He did not understand the prophets of old. More than that, and I think the point that is most emphatic is that the Old Testament prophets point to Jesus, the Messiah. Moses and the prophets pointed to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, need I say more? They were writing of Jesus. Jesus himself says so in Luke chapter 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, being Jesus, interpreted to them all the scriptures of the things concerning himself. Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself. Moses and the prophets wrote of the Messiah, of Jesus. Here's the fact of the matter. No one ever rejects the gospel due to a a lack of evidence, do they? No, they don't. This, This man now living in hell, this rich man, was trying to meet a moral problem with an intellectual solution. If only my brothers knew more, if only I had known more, had more evidence, then I would have repented and believed. And the problem was not the message, nor was the problem the medium of the message. The problem was that their hearts were hardened. They had hardened their hearts to the gospel. They had hardened their hearts to the truth. That was why they did not hear Moses and the prophets. They had all the evidence they need All that they needed was available to them in God's word, but because of their hardness of heart, they rejected it. This is true to this day. There's not a single soul in in this world, on this planet, that if given enough evidence, would only believe. No matter how much evidence you give, no matter how much apologetics you know, no matter how much you can prove that God exists, that Jesus existed, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, that will not change a person's hard heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Only the word of God along with the Holy Spirit going forth, the gospel proclaimed is the only way that a person's heart can be changed and that they can believe. I'm not saying apologetics are not important. I think apologetics are very valuable. I think they are good for us as believers to to bolster our strength, to encourage us. I think that it is important that we be able to give a defense for the hope that we have. But I I saw a video recently of R.C. Sproul that a friend of mine had posted, and I loved this video. In this video, R.C. Sproul was telling a story of when he was in college, and he went to go and debate with the Atheist Club. And R.C. Sproul even in college, was very smart, very intellectual, was able to debate with them, no problem. He makes this claim himself. He said, I can give a defense for the existence of God, a very good one, I think, uh, and for why people should believe. But when he went to this, uh, to meet with this atheist debate club, he said to them, I want to I be upfront with you and I want to put all my cards on the table. 
I don't actually believe, because of what God's word has told me in, cha- in Romans chapter one, I do not actually believe that you don't believe that God exists. I don't believe that you believe God doesn't exist. He said, I think you would know God exists and you hate the God that you know exists. That's what Romans one says. And I think that's absolutely true. I don't think there's a single person in this world that is gonna be, have their heart uh, softened their heart changed except by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Apart from that, it will not happen. We can give all the evidence we want, but it will not happen. That's why for us as believers, our call is to take the gospel to people. Not to argue with people, to be proved right historically, but to preach the gospel to people. Our final point is, again, I just want to drive home the reality that hell is a real place. The reason that we go forward and preach the gospel is because we believe that hell exists. It is a real place full of real people who suffer real punishment, real anguish, both consciously and by body and soul. It is a real reality. And we hear all these depictions of hell in scripture and it causes us to wonder, is hell really like that? It's what's described as a lake of fire, as a burning furnace There would be weeping, gnashing of teeth, all of these descriptions that were given for hell. And the question has to be asked, are they to be taken literally? And there are some people who would take comfort in saying, well, no, they're probably not intended to be interpreted literally. Probably not. And I would probably agree with that. It's probably not an actual literal example of what hell is like. But we should take no comfort from the fact that these are not literal examples. Because the point is that whatever the example we can give for hell, whatever the, uh, we can use to try and explain hell, hell is going to be far, far worse. Uncomprehendably worse. The same way we could never give a full description of the joy that will be ours in heaven, the glories of heaven, we could never exhaust that, right? We could never exhaustively explain what joy in heaven is gonna be like. And the same way we could never exhaustively explain what the torment of hell is gonna be like but it is a real place to which real people are going even this day. So as we close, I know this has been a, a bit of a downer sermon, uh, and I am sorry about that, but there are applications that we must draw from this passage. First of all, we ought to survey our life. Look at our life compared to the life of the rich man. The question is not, have I ever committed the sin that he committed in order to send my soul to hell? As we started with our our main idea, that's not the point. But we can look at our lives and say, does my life reflect a lover of self or a lover of God? The way I use my finances, the way I handle myself with those around me, the way I care for my neighbors, for those in need, that is a reflection of a heart that has been changed by the gospel or not been changed by the gospel. Your attitude towards your wealth, your resources, is a reflection of what you love. If you care more about your money, your wealth, keeping things for yourself rather than helping those around you, those in need, then you might love money more than yourself, more than Christ. You might love yourself more than Christ. It is good for us to ask these questions of ourselves. And then finally, the other application is that we are called as believers to warn people about hell. As I said, I think the doctrine of hell has been widely ignored 
in the church today. We don't like talking about it. It's not my choice to get up here and preach a sermon on hell. And when we hear sermons preached on hell, what do we say? Ah, fire and brimstone sermon, right? As a way to kind of like brush it off, right? Oh, he's one of those fire and brimstone preachers, right? That's a label no one wants. No one wants to be labeled a fire and brimstone preacher. But do we realize that if Jesus were here today, he'd be labeled a fire and brimstone preacher? The reality is that we are called to warn people of hell. We are so quick. We act like the cross, the gospel, has erased hell entirely. Because the cross has taken place, hell no longer exists. We don't have to talk about it. We tell people of of the problems in their life. We tell people of sin. And then we tell them of the good news of Jesus Christ that has come to save them. But we never tell them what is theirs if they reject it, do we? We leave hell out. We don't want to talk about hell. It seems harsh. We don't want people to think of us as the guy who talks about hell. But we have been called to warn people about hell the same way Jesus did. Because hell is a real place. It is a real place that people all around us in our workplaces and our schools are going right now. Apart from Christ, all of them are condemned. If we know someone is driving their car towards a cliff, is it loving for us to say, I think there's a better way to go. I prefer this road. Me personally, to tell you my story, I chose the other way. No, what we do is we tell them there's a cliff ahead. Don't drive off the cliff. There's a cliff. There's a world around us that is headed for hell unless we warn them of the reality of hell. And there's some who would say, well, won't they just come to Christ out of fear? Won't telling them about hell just make them scared of hell? And my answer is, shouldn't they be scared of hell? Shouldn't they want to escape this place of torment? Absolutely they should. A fear of hell is not a bad thing. That is an appropriate and right response. When we read what Jonathan Edwards writes about hell and it causes our skin to crawl, that is the right response. Never think for a moment that to warn people about hell is to be unloving, to be rude, or to be unkind. Jesus himself warned of hell. That is our call today. As we hear this punchline to the money lovers, let us ask ourselves and warn the world that lovers of money, worshipers of money, self, or any earthly thing are rejecting Christ and will result in the torment of hell. Let's pray. Lord God, I come to you today and ask that you would take what we have heard today, the passage that we have heard, and Hopefully, Lord, the words that I have spoken and that you would use them to change our hearts, to change our focus. Lord, I pray that we would see correctly, Lord, that a good and right doctrine of, the, of hell comes from a good and right doctrine of a holy and just God. Lord, if we claim to know you and want to worship you and serve you rightly and be obedient to your word, then hell is not something that we can ignore. It's not something that we can brush off or that we can trivialize, but it is real and it is the serious consequence for all who reject Christ. I pray, Lord, that all of those who are here today that have heard this, if they have been living in a state of worshiping themselves rather than Christ, that you would break their heart over their sin, that they would repent and that they would turn to Christ who offers life and life abundant. I pray, Lord, that the eternal reality for all those in this place 
would be everlasting, indescribable joy in heaven rather than indescribable and everlasting torment in hell. That is my prayer, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We now come to the